praying in general for the good of our city, for the salvation of a lot of people in our city, for the healing of people in our city, for God to pour himself out in power and in grace like he did in Nineveh, in the book of Jonah that we're in, that he would do that here in San Clemente on whatever scale he chooses and that we would be a part of that, that he'd use us to be a part of that. The, the guys I'm praying for, this time has been helpful for me in a lot of different ways. One of the ways is that it's helping me think about the non-Christian friends in my life in a new way or in a different way, in a little bit of a more vivid way. Sometimes it's easy to think of people, as sad as it is, sometimes it's easy to think of people by categories. You know, these are the non-Christians and this is my church family and this is my... who are not Christians, it, it, it helps us, or it helps me at least, to see their humanness, to appreciate them, to love them, to empathize with them a little bit better, to understand where they're coming from, and to grieve more at their current situation, which ultimately drives me more to prayer. Another one, one of the guys I'm praying with, he calls me Preach. It's his nickname for me, and um, it's not a Christian, and says it in totally good humor. He's a great guy. I love being with him, um, but not a Christian. Interested in spirituality, but doesn't know God, and he knows I'm praying for him. He said, I'm praying for you, you know, pray for you normally, but I'm praying for you every day right now up until Easter, and um, love for you to come to church then, but just kind of up front, out in the open, you know, here it is. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for another guy whose life is kind of a mess and uh, really needs the Lord, and then another guy uh, who I don't know much about, and he works at one of the Paneras that I frequent. And so it, it's, it's been really good for me. I hope it's been a blessing for you as well, and I hope it continues to be as we do that. Um, one other thing, we have our two-year uh, anniversary coming up here in two weeks, which I'm really excited about. The, um, that, that's going to be on the 22nd. So number one, I would encourage you to mark your calendars for that. We're going to have some extra fun stuff after service. We'll have lunch. We'll have some stuff for the kids. Um, good time to invite people to church, and so I would really encourage you to do that, to consider who you're going to invite. But as well, um, just a few things for us to know. The winter time, at least last year and this year, it's kind of the slow time for us. People travel during this time of year for some reason around here. At least a lot of people I know, people are sick. Just a lot of stuff is going on. Summer and fall are really kind of our growth periods. And so the, this period of the year is a little bit of a slower time for us. After we hit our second birthday or our anniversaries as we do that last year and this year, and then Easter, those are two really good opportunities in kind of our slower season to invite people to church. Um, Easter is kind of a cultural day that um, people who normally don't go to church will go to church, and when you're having a special event that's not on a cultural day, like our second birthday, folks tend to be more open to attending those days as well. So I would just encourage you to be praying on who you're going to invite. It could be the non-Christians you're praying for. Could be other folks you know who are unchurched, but those would be good days to invite them. On uh, the 22nd, we're going to be starting a brand new series as well, so that should be good uh, in terms of new folks who you are considering inviting. I would just really encourage you to do that. Let's jump into the book of Jonah. We're going to finish up our series this morning in Jonah chapter 4, and if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, and one of the guys will get you a Bible. You're going to want to follow along. We're covering the whole chapter, Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and I want to start by reminding you of a parable that Jesus told in Luke, I believe, chapter 15, and Jesus tells a story of, of a man with two sons. Both of these sons work for their father. His fa their father is very wealthy, he has a lot of land, he has a big estate, and they work for their father, not as servants, though as sons, and they're going to receive an inheritance from their father. He's a very generous and wealthy man. And one of the sons gets a little bit tired of all the work he has to do, and he goes to the father one day and he says, look, you're great and everything, but I want my inheritance now. 
I'd like for you to take all the money that you have stored for me in the future, and I'd like to just go ahead and take that now. And the father says, okay, this makes me sad, but okay. And so this son takes all of his inheritance, and he leaves, and the other son stays. The older son stays, the younger one goes. And he goes to a different country, very far away, and he takes his inheritance, and he, and he blows all of it. He spends it on stupid things. He's seeking to have a good time. He parties a lot. He meets a lot of girls. He spends it on alcohol and drugs and all kinds of other stuff. And then a famine comes. And so not only are his investments wiped out, but all of his cash is wiped out, and he's starving, and he has no place to stay. And he gets to such a low point that he ends up tending to some pigs, and he's so hungry that he looks at the pig food and his mouth starts to water. And then he kind of comes to his senses and he realizes, hey, look, I left my dad and I disrespected him and I blew him off and I blew out of there, but even my dad's servants, they live pretty well. They're not starving for pig food. I mean, they have bread and they have a place to stay. Maybe I'll just go back to my father's estate and I'll just be one of his servants. I won't even demand to be at the place of family. I'll just be one of his servants. That would be better than mouth-watering over pig food and having no place to stay. And so he goes back to his father, and he's getting his speech ready, and he says, okay, I'm going to ask for forgiveness. I'm going to say, I messed up. I'm going to say, this is all my fault, and I'm going to re ready to receive your wrath, but can I please be one of your servants? He's getting all this ready. And little does he know that the father has been waiting for him, praying for him, hoping that he would come back, desiring more than anything else that he would repent, that he would return. And Jesus tells a story in, in this vivid way where while the son is still a long way off, the father, it's like he's looking for him on the horizon and he sees the son coming and out of immense joy, this old Jewish guy pulls up his garb and sprints out to meet his son. It was one of the greatest days ever for him. He says, it's like my son was dead and now he's alive. He's come back to us. And the son gets his speech ready. He says, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. I've, I've, I've messed up. Can I just be one of your servants? And the dad says, are you kidding me? You are my son. You are always welcome in my home. And he gets a ring on his finger. He puts shoes on him. He gets his quarters, living quarters ready. He slaughters the fattened calf. They're going to celebrate. This is a good day. And for most people, that's where the story ends. If I ask you, you know the story about the two sons, most people would say, oh, you mean the prodigal son? That's where the focus always is. It's on the prodigal, the one who's returned. And rightfully so, that's a beautiful and amazing story. The, the man, the, the father is a picture of God the father, and the prodigal is a picture of some of us that we've just rebelled and ran from God. And God forgives. There's also another brother in the story. He gets left out because his sin's not quite as obvious. He gets left out because he's not the rebel. He's the really religious moral brother. He's the one who hasn't done anything obviously wrong. He's just the one who has deep-rooted sin in his heart. And he's standing there at the end of the story, and he says, Dad, are you kidding me? You can almost read the disgust in his tone of voice. Are you kidding me? I've been here with you all this time. I've never disrespected you this way. I never asked for my inheritance early. I never did anything to wrong you. I've served you faithfully. And now my loser brother who goes off and blows all his inheritance comes back all whiny and cry and you just, you treat him this way? You, you kill the fattened calf for him? You put your, ring, your own ring on his finger? Are you kidding me? 
Why? Why did he respond that way? Well, I'll tell you why. Part of the reason is that he does not understand grace. The older brother thinks he deserves punishment, not blessing. He deserves justice, not mercy. He doesn't understand grace. The older brother is uptight and moral and very, very religious. He's never done anything that obviously wrong or sinful. He's been faithful, so he deserves the blessing, not the younger brother. Friends, this is exactly where we find Jonah in the last chapter of the book that bears his name. Self-righteous, moralistic, religious, they don't deserve your blessing. I can't believe you're going to have mercy on those people. That's exactly where we find Jonah in chapter 4. I'm going to catch you up to speed just by way of review. In chapter 1, God calls Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah is a recipient of God's word, a recipient of his grace. He's called to be a prophet, one who speaks God's word. But the word that came to Jonah, Jonah didn't like. God said, go to the Ninevites, the inhabitants in a city that is part of a larger empire called Assyria. You may have heard of them. They were a brutal and murderous and evil people. They were enemies of Israel, and they were absolutely brutal. We talked about that in the first part of the series. You can go back and listen to it. Brutal people. Think ISIS, think Nazi, think Mao Zedong, think that type of regime, really bad. And God says, go preach to them. Jonah doesn't like that. So he flees. He runs from God. He rejects God. He refuses to listen to God, and he, he's out of there. But God doesn't let Jonah run because ultimately God doesn't let his people run from him, which is a good thing. So God pursues Jonah. He sends a storm to overtake the ship that Jonah's on, threatening to capsize it. Jonah's thrown overboard. God pursues Jonah with a fish. He appoints a fish to come and swallow Jonah, which sounds awful, but it actually preserved his life. He's bringing Jonah low, not for punishment, but to shape him and grow him, to make him somebody who's usable. That's chapter one. Chapter two, Jonah, the beginning of, uh, end of chapter one, God delivers Jonah from the fish, okay? He survived. He gets spit back up on the land. And chapter two, um, I'm, I'm sorry, the end of chapter two, he gets spit back up on the land. Chapter two, he's in the fish, and he realizes he's in a bad situation, He's in a tight situation that he's going to die, and so he cries out to God, happy to receive God's mercy, happy to repent, happy to seek after God when he's down in the dumps. At the end of chapter 2, as I said, Jonah gets delivered from the fish. Then chapter 3, Jonah obeys God. Chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah again. Just like in chapter 1, God pursues Jonah swallowed by the fish, and then brings him right back to where he rebelled in the first place. See, that's what God usually does. We can't just get away from what God's called us to do and say, okay, let's just forget about it now. Let's just wipe the slate clean. God brings him right back, says, I still want you to obey. And so Jonah does obey. He goes and preaches to Nineveh. He preaches a message of wrath and damnation, but he's used powerfully by God, and Nineveh repents. God turns from his wrath. He turns from the disaster that he said he would do to them. Chapter 3, verse 10. Okay, chapter 4 then. 
records Jonah's answer, verses 1 through 3. Nineveh repented, God relented, chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. I just knew you would do this. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's Jonah's response to God's powerful working in the city of Nineveh. As a preacher, this is the result you're after, but not Jonah. (coughs) His response is anger. His response is outrage. His response is fury to the point of complete, exasperated despair. Jonah obeyed God and now is completely indignant at the result. Why? Why is Jonah so upset? This is like an out-of-tune instrument in the orchestra. Everything's going perfect and bam, it's out of tune. It's off note. This doesn't make sense. This is not what you'd expect. We're off key here. What's going on? He obeyed God, and God did his thing, and he's furious. Friends, do you know there's a wrong kind of obedience? There's a wrong kind of obedience. God's not just looking for outward conformity. He's looking for something deeper. That's the first thing for us to think about this morning, the first point for us to think about, the wrong kind of obedience. There is a wrong kind of obedience. Let me ask you a question. Why do you obey God? Why do you obey God? Have you ever considered that? Why? Why do you obey God? Why did Jonah obey God? Well, we know the answer to that. Chapter 1, verse 15. The sailors picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. My wife and I were watching a show last night where... A gal had been buried under, building collapsed. A gal had been kind of buried in some rubble and doctors there with her trying to help her. And she says, will you, will you pray for me? And he says, no, no, I'm not, a, no, I don't believe in God. I don't encourage that fairy tales, that sort of thing. And she says, I don't believe in God either. And yet she wanted to pray in that moment. That's what our natural tendency is, isn't it? Just, I'm in a really bad situation. I need help. I don't know who else to call. Jonah's in the sea, he gets swallowed by a fish, he he cries out to God. I mean, that's a bad situation, he's under tons of pressure, he's been brought low, his weakness has been revealed, so he cries out in confession. That's why Jonah obeyed. Sometimes God brings us low that we might realize our weakness so we can realize his strength. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. God's seeking dependence in us. He's seeking change in us. He's seeking something deeper than just an outward profession. I was reading something recently about um, people with cardiovascular disease and they go in for major surgeries that you know, they need or they're gonna die. And they talk to the cardiologist and the cardiologist says, this is not a cure for you. 
You need this surgery, but it's not a cure. What the cure is, is for you to change your life. You need to change your lifestyle. You need to start doing different things. You need to start eating different things. You need to start exercising in different ways. You need to change. And they say, oh, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. They're close to death. You know, they're going under the knife for major surgery. I know, I need to change. I promise I'm going to change. Study after study after study after study. Year or two in, no change. Year or two after the surgery, no change. No change. Unbelievably common. I think it was over 93% of people who have that type of surgery do not really change their lifestyle for longer than a couple weeks or a couple months. God's looking for more than just a heat of the moment, outward, I need help. See, if there's no heart change, friends, we'll just snap right back. In chapter 2, Jonah confesses. In chapter 3, he obeys. But now in chapter 4, he rages against God when he doesn't get the result he wants. His heart is not yet aligned with God's. Jonah wants his will and not God's. He still wants his own will and not God's. Okay, so why do you obey God? Why do you obey God? Sometimes we obey God, if we're honest, because we're in a bad situation and we need God's help. We're back into a corner. We've gotten some bad news. We realize we're powerless, and so we need God's help. We need to seek God because we can't handle this on our own. Do you tend to seek God when turmoil comes? Is that what you do? I don't want to discourage you on this. Sometimes it's, I mean, it's always good to do that. And sometimes God will use adversity in our life as a wake-up call. Sometimes he will. But is it a pattern? Is it a pattern? Do you find yourself forgetting about God when things are good? And really, you know, you're a changed person when things are bad. When your conscience is afflicted. When your marriage is struggling or when your spouse is going to leave because you've treated them like garbage for the last couple years, and now all of a sudden, two weeks later, I'm changed, I swear. I'm changed. Oh, I love God now. I'm obeying God now. I'm a totally different person. I mean, you can think about a million different situations where maybe in your life personally, what you've seen, just what we can think of, make up, where we're in, we can be in really bad situations where we realize I'm at the end of my rope, I need God. Get laid off, your health declines, your kids, or you sin and your conscience is afflicted or you sin and you don't confess, you just get caught. You get caught. And so now, oh man, I'm in a, yeah, now I admit it. Now I confess, and now I really need God. There are some times where things are really bad, and we want things in life to change, or we want to avoid further calamity, so we begin to obey, and we begin to seek God. And again, I'm not saying that's bad. I want you to do that, but I want you to notice, is that a pattern in my life? If it's a pattern, then that's not good then we really need to change. You really need to repent. You need to ask God to change your heart. Because if it's a pattern, things are bad, I need God. Things are good, God's cool, but you know, I'm not as desperate. Things are bad, I need God. We're treating God like, like a fairy. You know, just we need something, so we ask our fairy God, and then 
you know, but he's a fairy, so his feelings don't get hurt. So when I don't need something, you know, he's just off in fairyland and he'll come tend to me when I need something. That's not the God of the Bible. So let me ask if this is what I ask people when we're in really bad situations, we're turning to God. Ask yourself this question if I don't get the result I want, am I still, would I still be as needy for God? Am I still going to be as zealous in seeking after God? I talked to someone a while back, and their marriage was falling apart. They had just treated their wife like complete garbage, and she was leaving and going to take all their kids with them and all that. And, uh, and he was, you know, realized, he's like, I treated my wife like total garbage for the last, you know, five years. And she's fed up with it. They said they were Christians, you know. And he said, I'm just, you know, I'm really changed now. You know, and I'm just trying to save my marriage. I'm trying to pursue my wife, and I just, I'm trying to pursue God. I said, those are good things. I'm glad you want to save your marriage. I'm glad you're not wanting to give up. But let me ask you a question. If you don't get what you want, will you still seek God this way? He said, I don't know. He's honest. I don't know. That'd be really hard. See, friends, when we get to that point, when we're we think through our situation that way, we realize I'm kind of using God to get what I want. I'm not after God for God. I'm after God for something else. And that's not what God's after. When we're in that situation, friends, when, in those moments when that happens to us, we have lost sight of grace. Crying out at a low point is not bad, but God doesn't want us to obey if our motive is just to get a result from God. That's not what he wants. That's not what he wants. He wants our heart. He wants our heart. He wants more than just reformed behavior. He wants our heart. And oftentimes, bad situations or disruptive grace in our life gets us to God, causes us to be dependent on God, and all that. Okay, but God wants Jonah and us to see that he is after a different kind of obedience. He is after an obedience from the heart, an obedience that delights in God, an obedience that trusts God. That is the type of obedience that God wants from Jonah and God wants from you and I. Not a results-driven obedience. We sang a song this morning, "'Tis So Sweet." Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Do you mean that? And when you sing that, do you actually mean that? That's the kind of obedience God is looking for. I'm going to be obedient to you, God. I'm going to make requests, of course, but I'm going to be obedient to you, not just to get a result, but because I love you, because I trust you, because you are supremely good, because you love me, you've saved me, you're sovereign king, ruler, God, Lord, so I trust you. But do we believe that? One guy says, uh, theologian, mid-20th century, he says, Christians don't speak lies, they sing them. We may not walk around on a Tuesday lying to our coworker, but man, we sure, we sure do come to church Sunday and we sing. And do we really mean it? I think sometimes if we're honest, we're just going through a routine. How about blessing? 
Sometimes we can obey God to get out of a bad situation like Jonah. He would have never thought that at the time, but we can see his heart hasn't changed, so that was his main motive. But how about blessing? How about to receive blessing? Do you tend to obey God when you want something or when you feel you need something? Now, of course, it's good to seek blessing, to pray for blessing, to desire God's blessing on our life. There's no question about it. But if blessing is the motivation of our obedience, then we're missing grace. I'm going to obey so that God will bless me. We'd never verbalize it that way, but we often function that way. I'm going to obey so God will bless me. You remember when you were single and you, maybe some of you are there, and you really wanted to be married? And then you found the girl who was just perfect. Oh, she's just perfect. I think God might be calling, I just, ooh, I don't want to say it, but I think God might be calling me to be with this person. And man, you hope she likes you back. You hope she's the one. God, I pray she's the one. Okay, I got to start cleaning my life up. I got to start taking showers. I got to start being responsible. I got to start putting my best foot forward. Go, God, I hope she's the one. I got to start serving really fervently at church so she sees, you know, how faithful I am. I got to start reading the Bible and reading theology because I know she loves God and she, you know, she's really into doctrine and she just loves Jesus. And so I need to show her how much I know about God. I need to get to God because she needs to see how much I love God. God, I hope she's the one. I pray every night. I journal every night. How about, how many of you have had a rough day and you think about your day and you go, man, it's just a rough day. Oh, I knew I shouldn't have skipped my devotion this morning. I knew I shouldn't have skipped my prayer time. I knew I shouldn't have skipped my Bible reading. <sighs> if I wouldn't have done that, oh, my day would have started off better. I'd have been more in the spirit. I just would have had a better day. Do you see how subtle this is? That's functionally thinking and operating in a way that says, if I would have done what God wanted me to do, he would have blessed me more. If I would have read or prayed or done what I needed to do, things would have been different. I would have been more blessed. That's not grace, friends. That's not the gospel. Our obedience is not the basis of our blessing. It's not. How about pride? Sometimes our obedience to God feeds our pride. And it's unbelievable how deceptive these things can be, right? Sometimes our obedience feeds our pride. I'm a good Christian. I'm a moral Christian. I obey God. Oh, look at those people who don't. That is so sad. That's so sad. Ah, that's so awful. Not, I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not like that. Oh, we just have to pray for them. Those are the right words, but oftentimes it comes from a really smug, 
an arrogant place. There's some of this in Jonah here. There's some of this in the elder brother. I'm not like them. They don't deserve grace. They've done bad things. I've done good things. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. We're saved by grace. But listen, I've done good things. They don't deserve that blessing. How about fear? I need to obey so I don't get punished. I need to obey so things go well in life. I need to obey, not necessarily to get some really big blessings, but just so I don't, like, so bad things don't happen. That's fear. That's obedience based on fear. Listen, God is after a different kind of obedience, friends. Obedience motivated by grace and obedience motivated by love for the person of God, not desire for the blessings that God gives. There's a big difference. We can love the gift and not really care about the giver. Our obedience should be based off love for his person, for him, not for what he gives, as amazing as those things are. God is after an obedience that's rooted in the gospel. Listen, friends, Jesus lived for you. He lived in your place, a righteous life. Our lives have been unrighteous. Jesus died for you, paying the penalty for all of your sin. Jesus then brought us into union with himself and union with the Father. He made us family. He brought us into God. All the punishment, all the wrath, all the condemnation is removed. There's no more fear, friends. That's grace. All the blessings and benefits are yours in Christ. That's grace. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every single one. All of it in Christ. Not because we did anything. Not because we cleaned our life up. Not because we're all reformed now in our behavior. Not because... <clears throat> You know, we read our Bibles, not because we pray, not because we seek God, none of that. None of that is why God has blessed us. He has blessed us with every single blessing he could possibly bless us with because we've been brought into his family by the work of Jesus. God has chosen to love us. God has worked in us then to love him back. That's why we obey. That is why we obey. Paul says in Ephesians, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't sin and grieve the Holy Spirit. That is why we obey. We don't want to hurt God. We don't want to grieve God. Why don't you sin against your wife? Is it just because you can't get away with it? It wouldn't be practically beneficial? You don't feel like it? Or is it because you love her or you love your husband and you don't want to sin against them? That's why we don't sin against them. Same with God. We don't want to sin against him because we love him. We love him. And our sin actually grieves him. Okay, listen, you can write this down. Obedience is not the goal. Obedience is not the goal. The goal is to know and love God. Obedience is not the goal. The goal is to know and love God and to delight in him. Obedience is a byproduct of knowing God. You can tweet that if you want. That's a really tweetable. Obedience is a byproduct of knowing God. 
Obedience is not the goal. It's a byproduct. That's why our mission statement does not start with declare or disciple. It does not start with the things that we now do in obedience to God. It starts with no. We first know Jesus. That is where it starts. And then, as a result, as a byproduct, we obey him. As a result, from knowing him, we declare his name because we love him. And he's told us to do that, and we want others to love him too. We make disciples to help others know him better and grow in grace. But it starts with no. That's where it starts. Psalm 48, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is in my heart. I delight to do your will. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean, oh, I have really all these messed up desires and I'm gonna delight in God and then he'll, he'll be okay with my sinful desires. That's not what it means. What it means is as we delight in God, our hearts will be aligned with him. As we delight in God, our desires will begin to be his desires. Jonah's not there yet. He's not there yet. And it's revealed in his response. Jonah had obedience to God, but it wasn't the right obedience. Right obedience leads to joy. Wrong obedience leads to anger, frustration, and despair. Number two, the wrong kind of anger. The wrong kind of obedience leads to the wrong kind of anger. Anger is what you feel when your expectation of justice has not been met. Anger is what you feel in response to sin and in response to wrongdoing. That's righteous anger. Unrighteous anger is more about us. I've been personally slighted. I feel offended. You have a different opinion than me, so I'm mad. It's more about us. It's more us-centered. Our ego has been damaged a little bit, so now I'm really mad. Okay, petty. Righteous anger is the response to our expectation, our understanding of justice not being met. Jonah had a specific expectation he wanted God to meet through his obedience. And it wasn't met, and so he erupts in anger. He feels tricked. I knew it, God. I knew it. I, knew, I just knew you would do that. He feels like he's been used. He feels like God's unjust because he's been gracious. How could you do that, God? In a day where... if if God has any wrath, people in our culture would say, how could God have any wrath? And in a day where God doesn't, in, in, in this day, God doesn't pour out his wrath and Jonah says, how could you do that? How could you do that? See, we always take our expectations of God and impose them on God and then get upset oftentimes when that's not what God decides to do. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? Why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? I knew that you are gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I just knew it. Jonah 
is angry because he's not getting his way. God's not meeting his standard. Again, friends, he's not grasping grace. He's angry and despairing because God chose to deliver and not destroy. And Jonah doesn't like that. He's self-righteous. They don't deserve your mercy. Who, look, who's been the greatest recipient of grace in this story? Jonah. Jonah. Jonah's been the greatest recipient of grace in this story. The Ninevites don't know God. They've received tons of grace, obviously, but Jonah knows God. He's a prophet. He knows God. He receives God's word, and God comes to Jonah, tells him his word, and Jonah bails. Nineveh receives God's word, and what do they do? Oh, this is God? Oh, I better repent. Jonah receives it and leaves. And yet God had grace, lots of grace on Jonah. He's been the biggest recipient of grace so far. Chapter 2, verse 1. Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord in my distress. He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Yeah, when he's in trouble, he's happy to receive grace. But when they're in trouble, he wants justice. He wants justice. And here's the kicker. He uses Bible verses to justify himself and his own anger against God. I knew you were a God, slow to anger, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. That's a Bible verse. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's a Bible verse, friends. Jonah tells God a Bible verse to God to justify himself against God. I knew you were like that. You know, you're just a big fuzzy God with no justice. And you know, I'm mad and I have a right to be mad because you should have had justice. One commentator says this, whenever we read the Bible in order to say, aha, I'm right. Whenever we read it to feel righteous and wise in our own eyes, we are using the Bible to make ourselves into fools or worse. Since the Bible says that the mark of evil fools is to be wise in their own eyes. In other words, if we feel more righteous as we read the Bible, we're misreading it. We are missing its central message. We are reading and using the Bible rightly only when it humbles us, critiques us, encourages us with God's love and grace despite our flaws. That is how we read the Bible. And that is not how Jonah is reading the Bible. Jonah is reading the Bible to justify himself, to make himself feel more righteous. Jonah doesn't grasp grace. Friends, do we? Do we grasp grace? Do you grasp grace? Are you easily angered? Do you hold grudges? Do you dig up past sins or wrongs? When you're in an argument with your spouse, do you find yourself digging up past sins and throwing them in their face? 
Or maybe you do it passive aggressively. Do you dig up past sins? You hang on to them? Remember them? Are you quick to point out wrong? Are you quick to seek justice? Are you slow to forgive? Do you see the worst in people? I think if we're honest, for all of us, to some of those questions, the answer is a devastating yes to varying degrees, but it's a yes. I do those things. Yeah, I'm there. I'm guilty of that. I'm self-righteous. I'm sinful. I don't understand grace. We need to ask ourselves, church, I'm going to ask you right now, does, is Jesus easily angered with you? Does Jesus Christ hold grudges against you? Does Jesus dig up your past and throw it in your face? Is Jesus quick to point out your wrong? Is Jesus quick to dispense righteous justice against you? Is Jesus slow to forgive you? Does Jesus see the worst in you? Jesus is slow to anger. In fact, he took God's anger for us. All of God's anger that was righteously directed towards us. All of the righteous grudges that God had against us. All of the righteous wrath and indignation that should have been poured out on us. Jesus doesn't hold that against us. He actually paid it for us. It was poured out, all of it. The whole cup was poured out all on him. Jesus doesn't dig up our sins. Our sins are, they're dead. They're paid for. Jesus isn't slow to forgive. He's quick to forgive. Jesus doesn't see the worst in us. He sees the absolute best in us. In fact, he sees his very own righteousness in us. That's the best. He doesn't see our sins, the big ones, the petty ones. He sees his own righteousness when we grasp grace towards us, when we grasp the grace that God has given us, then we give it to others. We're able to give it to others. If we're not gracious towards others, we're not grasping grace. When we grasp God's grace towards us, we give it to others. And if we're not giving it, we don't understand grace. And friends, I'm right here with you. We're all self-righteous, different areas to varying degrees, but all of us are, just like Jonah. Maybe you've been actually wronged. Maybe it's not a petty little offense. Maybe you've been actually wronged, and I don't want to lessen that. There's real pain, real hurt, certainly can be. God never, the good thing about, I mean, one of the most amazing things about Scripture is God never tells us to just pretend everything's fine. He never tells us to merely forget, just to go away, magically just change your feelings, just will. Don't be angry. Don't feel that way. 
He doesn't tell us to just arbitrarily change our feelings, but he does tell us to remember that the grace you've received, that we might give it to others. He does tell us to do that. So don't just magically change our feelings, but let me ask, are you pursuing forgiveness? Are you pursuing reconciliation? Are you pursuing restoration for those who have hurt? Or are you storing up bitterness? Let me just encourage you, friends, don't wait till you feel like it. You're never gonna feel like it. You're just gonna get more bitter. Do what God says, and then your heart will align. Number three, the wrong kind of treasure. The wrong kind of treasure. Look with me at verse five. Jonah chapter four. Verse four, rather. Jonah is angry, and God looks at him, speaks to him gently, and the Lord said to him, do you do well to be angry? Just kind of leaves that there for him to think about. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. He made a booth for himself there and sat under its shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God had appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. He didn't just kill it, he attacked it. The worm attacked the plant, and it withered. And then the sun rose, and God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to live, to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant, the little plant, for which you didn't labor, you didn't make, you didn't grow. It came into being overnight, and it perished overnight. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Jonah goes outside the city to watch the city, waiting in hope of judgment. Okay, he's still just hoping God will pull one out for him. God appoints a plant, give Jonah a little bit of respite, some shade, and Jonah is exceedingly glad. You can almost hear him saying, finally. Man, I can't catch a break. Ugh, finally. Got some shade. Got to do to get a little break around here. He sits under the shade, exceedingly glad. God then destroys the plant and sends a scorching wind that drives Jonah into further despair. You can picture him here going, unbelievable. I can't even get a few minutes of stupid shade. I just loved that plant. I loved it. It, it provided me shade, and now it's gone. Further despair. His anger is renewed. This is preparation for God to teach him that he has the wrong treasure. He treasures the wrong things. His loves, if you will, are displaced. They're mixed up. They're not in the right order. They're not where they ought to be. Then God says, look, Jonah, you had compassion for the plant, and you treasured it. You loved that little plant. And it just came up one day, and then it died the next day, and you grieved when it died. 
The things that you value most are the things that benefit you. The things that you treasure most, reflected in what you grieve about most, are the things that benefit you. You're grieving more about a little plant that provided you some shade and then died. You're grieving more about that than you are a city of hundreds of thousands of people who are about to get judged. Your treasures are misplaced. You have compassion for the plant. I have compassion for these people. That's what God's saying. 120,000 persons who don't know from the right and from the left, that's babies, okay? That's what the commentators all say. These are babies. There's like 600,000 people in this city. And God just even points out the children and says, I care about them. And all you can think about is your plant? That's what you're grieved about, Jonah? We have lots of attachments in life, friends. We have lots of needs. There's certain people we need, people we get attached to. We have emotional attachments to items, to animals. When we see the people we love most suffer, don't we suffer a bit? God has no needs. God has no attachments. God needs nothing outside of himself to complete himself. He is wholly self-sufficient. He doesn't change. He never needs anything. He has perfect fellowship with himself, love, joy, glory, all within himself. Some people have said God created people because he wanted fellowship. That's not true. God has fellowship within himself, perfect, unbroken, holy, good fellowship. He does not need us. He does not have any attachment to us that is necessary for him to be who he is, that completes him in any way. But here's what God's saying. Though he has nothing, there is nothing that he needs, he chooses to attach himself. He chooses to love people. He chooses to attach himself in such a way that when people are sinning against him, he actually has pity for them. That's incredible. He chooses that. He voluntarily attaches himself to his people, to sinners, to the Ninevites, to you and me. And because of that attachment, he makes us family and we become his treasure and he becomes ours. See, friends, Jonah's treasure his values, his priorities, what he thinks is important in life is really messed up. And you know what? So is ours. So is ours. Ours gets messed up too. What we value most gets really messed up, doesn't it? Oftentimes we say one thing, but when we look, take a look at our lives, we realize there's something else being valued here. Isn't there? There's something else being valued. Oh, Jesus is number one. Jesus is the best. He's the most important priority. And then we look at our lives and it's like, Maybe sometimes, but not most of the time. It's because our loves get messed up. They get out of order. And when the first one is out of order, God, the rest of them get out of order. It's called idolatry. Martin Luther says about the Ten Commandments, he says the first commandment, if you get that one right, the rest will follow. If you get that one wrong, the rest will be messed up. The first one is to love God. Love God. 
have him first, no other gods before me. Well, if we get that one messed up, then the rest are gonna be messed up. But if that one is right, if it's in its right spot, if we are not practicing idolatry, worshiping things other than God, if we're worshiping God as God and only God as God, then the other ones will be in the right places. Jonah's treasure is messed up. Ours get messed up. But friends, while all of our treasures get messed up, Jesus' grace reorders them. Jesus' grace gives us the right treasures in the first place. Jonah 2.8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's all of us. Jesus intervenes in our life and he becomes our treasure. And when our, when our loves get disordered, Jesus reorders them, friends. Jesus reorders them. That's grace. That's grace. That's what God is trying to show Jonah here. The book ends with a question. There's no resolution. It's a cliffhanger. It ends with a question. Should I not value these people more than you value your plant? The question is not answered because it's a question we need to answer. That's a question for us. It's a question for you and me. What's your greatest treasure? What is your greatest treasure? That's what God's trying to get Jonah to see. That's what he's trying to get us to see, friends. By grace, we must understand that by grace, when we're honest and we confess, yeah, I've been an idolater, yeah, I've been a sinner, yeah, my loves are disordered, Jesus, I need you to change my heart. He will. He will, friends. He will. As we finish here, I want to invite you up to pray at the end of service. The worship team comes up. We're going to finish out in a few songs. We get to respond to Jesus and his word by partaking of communion, by singing together, but also through prayer. Maybe your loves are disordered. Maybe your life is in turmoil. Maybe you've been seeking or obeying God for the wrong reasons. Hey, we need to know that while there's change necessary, Jesus has immense, infinite, unending grace for his people, friends. So we invite you forward to pray, and we invite you forward, if you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, to partake of the Lord's Supper, his body and his blood broken and spilled for us in our place. Father God, we thank you for your immense and unescapable and infinite grace in our lives. We confess, Lord, that we often don't grasp grace, the grace you've given towards us, and therefore we fail to give it to others. I know that's true in my life. And so I ask you, Jesus, would you give us the humility to confess to you that we don't understand grace oftentimes. Would you give us the humility to seek help from you and to actually desire change and to not just to confess vagaries and little things here and there, but to bear it all before you because you already know it all, Jesus, and you are the one that can change us. When our loves are disordered, we need you to reorder them. We trust and hope and look to you to do that work in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. 